Okay, well, uh, we're starting tonight on a four-week series in the book of Jude, and uh, tonight we're not going to cover a lot of ground. We're only going to cover uh, probably the first four verses because there are some things that I want to say to introduce the subject matter, but also to introduce how it is uh, that, uh, that I'm actually back up here again because I never thought that actually that would happen again. And quite frankly, two years ago, it's not something that I ever wanted to happen again. And so uh, Pastor Evans used to say to me, you know, God is going to get you even if he uses, has to use a crooked stick to reach around and get you. And so uh, there's a, a path that, uh, that I believe God is using and has used to bring us here tonight. So I want to start by just saying a few words about, you know, when I... When I saw the need two years ago to step down of, out of ministry, I knew that there was, that, that something had changed within me. It was rather vague. I couldn't put my finger on it. Uh, I mean, I, I still was able to exposit the scripture and, and, and understand my need to be faithful to the ministry and to God's word and all of those things. But there was something that was, it was, it was missing. It was vague. And so when, when you get in that place, it's important to realize that in that place, it's very easy to confuse and to conflate your task in building the kingdom of God with building your own kingdom. So that, that's a dangerous place to be in. And so it, it was very clear to me uh, that it was time to pass the mantle on to Pastor Roman. And, and we stepped out, I stepped out, and truth be told, uh, it was probably three months before I even thought about setting, setting foot in another church again. I needed to go into, into the wilderness and figure out what it is that, that had gone missing within me. Well, uh, it, it finally started to dawn on me that uh, what had happened to me was is that I had, I had left my first love. Um, I had lost the passion, not the passion to serve, but the passion to learn and to grow and to have that fellowship that we're all called to have with God in and through his word and with other people. And so it was after about three months, I, we started visiting other churches. I started visiting other churches and, and I was happy doing that. And I, I really felt strongly that the way that I was approaching my job at the airport was an act of worship towards God, and I was happy with that, and we got a boat, and then uh, you know, it was around the beginning of the year, I, I just felt this urging to you know, maybe start doing something on the internet, and so I started the YouTube channel and all of those things, and I was, I was really happy doing that. It's really all I wanted to do was uh, work on my boat, work at the airport, and work on my YouTube channel. I was good with that. I know even Roman, Pastor Roman approached me a couple times, and I was rather impudent and said, yeah, no, I'm not doing that, and I don't feel guilty for not doing that. You know, I think you'll remember those conversations. And so I, I was okay with that, you know, and I felt that God was okay with me being like that. And, uh, and then uh, it was a little after... Easter Sunday of this year, that it was about, I don't know, 8.30, sometime early in the morning. I know it was early in the morning because I was still in my pajamas and I heard a on the door downstairs. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And it's like, I'm like, it must be Jehovah Witnesses. If you just ignore them, they'll go away, you know? And it wasn't, it was, so finally I relented and I went downstairs and I opened the front door and it was a friend uh, who was you know, a leader in another church. And he, he stopped by, I said, hey, hey Carmen, I just wanted to stop by and see how you were doing. I said, well, I'm doing good. He says, what have you been up to? I said, well, I'm working on the airport, I'm working on my boat and I'm working on my YouTube channel. And he shook his head and said, no. He says, it's time for you to get back to doing what God has called you to do. And I'm like, well, I." Thank you for saying that to me and for stopping by and checking up on me. And I closed the door and I said, yeah, I'm set with that. You know, I was good in where I was at. And then over the course of the next couple of days, 
uh, you know, God started, I think, working on me because there was this one name that kept popping into my head during this time, and that was the name Jonah. You know, not that, not that I presume to be Jonah or like Jonah, but I think that there's a lesson for all of us there that when God calls us to do something, you're going to do it come the proverbial hell or high water, right? And so I started thinking about it. And so at that point, I, I kind of made a covenant with God. I said, okay, God, I said, look, I'm willing to do anything that you want me to do, but I am not going to pursue anything. I'm not going to pursue pulpit supply. I'm not going to pursue teaching. I'm not going to pursue doing Bible studies. I'm not going to pursue anything. If there's something that you want me to do, then you're going to have to lead me to it. You're going to have to lead me very clearly to it. And so then it began. You know, hey, are you interested in doing pulpit supply? Okay, I, I'm not certain. Okay, well, I did say I would do it, you know. But, and so that's been my, that's kind of been the way I've been operating, you know, since that time. Well, then Pastor Roman reaches out to me. Hey, Pastor Rizzo, we're thinking about maybe you doing a four or five week seminar over the summer at the church. What do you think about that? And I said, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't seek it out, so I'm going to assume that this is something that God wants me to at least consider. So I met with Pastor Roman, and I went there with, with three different things that I could potentially teach on. And I was thinking to myself, you know what? He's the pastor here now. He knows better than anybody else now what the needs of this flock are. So I, I'm going to trust him to make the decision, and I'm going to, again, follow that God is going to lead this, that God is going to speak to me through Pastor Roman on what he wants me to speak on. And so he, there was almost no hesitation. He said, Jude, you know? And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do Jude. Now, I was a bit thrown off balance by this, and I'll tell you why. Well, because first of all, I've probably taught through the book here over the last 20 years at least a half a dozen times. Secondly, I know the pastor, and I know he's doctrinally sound, and I know the teachers here. The teachers are all doctrinally solid and sound, and I know the doctrinal statement of the church. It's all doctrinally sound. So uh, why... why it doesn't seem to kind of make sense. And then in the course of, you know, my studies in some of the other studies that I'm doing for the, some of the other series that I'm working on for YouTube, I came across something that I, that I hadn't really considered. And it kind of startled me as to that that might be part of the reason why God wanted me to bring this study or in Jude to you all over the next four weeks. And so that's kind of how we got to where we are uh, tonight. So let, let's, let's move right into this. And uh, I want to start by something that I call the arc of time. And so when you look back over the, over the history of how God has done things from the beginning, it seems that he reveals his, his plans to men and brings about his purposes, not so much in a, a straight chronological line, but in arcs of time. And so what I mean by arcs of time is when, when God begins to, to, to move something or to make a change, it starts uh, you know, very subtly, very slowly, and then builds, seems to build to a, a crescendo where you get to the top of the ark and then it kind of tapers off. And so you, I, I've seen that time and time again as I've looked at the scripture. And so I thought I'd start tonight by, by actually looking at the ark of time that scripture says that we are in at this present time. Now, this I'm sure is no surprise to you that this ark of time here represents the church age or those seven churches that are talked about in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. Now, because you've been exposed to the teaching on this subject over the years, you'll know that, that uh, these churches were literal historical churches uh, of, of, the, uh, of the diaspora in the early years, and you'll also know that, that God had placed those there 
to give specific messages to these churches, but that they also stood as representatives of what you would find that were characteristics of different churches uh, throughout, throughout the history of the church. But what you find, and this is what is so astounding, and I'll explain this to you in a minute, is you find that in this message, there is a very special message for us, those of us who are living during this time. Because as you see, that there is also a chronological way to understand these seven churches, that they actually represent seven periods or seven movements uh, of the church throughout the church age. And so the first church there is the church of Ephesus, which would represent the apostolic age, that approximately roughly 30 to 100 AD. And then you have the church of Smyrna that is uh, representative of the, the persecuted church. And, and in fact, you find that this was the period of history when the early Christian church came under the greatest degree of persecution during the 10 persecutions culminating in the Diocletian persecution and uh, some of the estimates as to the amount of Christians who were martyred during, during these 10 periods of persecution, upwards of 20 to 30 million. So it was, it was a, a substantial amount. And so you see that it, that it really lines up well. And then uh, the Pergamos church would line up with, with basically what the church became after 313 AD. Does anyone know what was so, so notable about 313 AD? Max? Yes, the Edict of Toleration, you know, the Edict of Milan. And so that is when the Emperor Constantine embraced Christianity and Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so you had a, a great influx of those now who were, who were converting to Christianity in order to get all of the perks and bennies that now went along with being a Christian in the empire. So you see that it lines up really well. And then we move on to the Church of Thyatira, uh, which is basically representative of when the Roman Empire fell, essentially all of its assets were, were taken over under pretense by the Roman Catholic Church. And so the big power broker became the Roman Catholic Church. And this is that period of history known as the Holy Roman Empire, which lasted from 600 all the way to 1517 AD. What is the next notable event that happens in 1517 AD that takes us now into the age of Sardis? Doug? 1517 AD. The 95 Theses posted by Martin Luther on the, on the uh, cathedral door, right? So you have the beginning of the Protestant Reformation taking place at then. So um, that would cover the period of 1517 to 1900 AD. And then moving on, you have the great, uh, the Philadelphian church, which represents the great missionary age when missionaries were being sent out to all parts of the world. Uh, by Christian organizations. And then finally, we come to Laodicea, which is from about 1900 to where we are now. So here is the interesting thing about this, is you could not see this relationship to these seven churches, to the movement of the church throughout this age, unless you were in the Laodicean age and looking back. You see that? So this is a special message from God to us. And what do you think that that message is? Uh, I, I'm sorry, John. The time is near that we are in fact at the end of the age. And so just to give you an idea of the end of the age, so let's go all the way back to the apostolic age and these verses were all written during the apostolic age. Um, I can't read it because it's too small. Um, well, I can read it this way. <laughs> Hebrews, verse, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says, has in these last days, that's speaking of Jesus, 
spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. James 5.1, come now you rich, weep, howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. And one more, James 5, 9, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now these words, remember, as I just said, were all written at the beginning of the church age, right, in the Ephesus part, in the part that coincided with the apostolic church. And so a synonymous term for the church age or the age of the church is indeed the last days. So when you consider this, we are actually, we are actually living at the end of the last days. And so there's a message that God wants us to see this. So this is the, the arc of time that we find ourselves in uh, at this time period. Okay, so now what I want to introduce is I want to introduce another arc of time and that arc of time in the scriptures is known as the age of the Gentiles. So we get this term, we, we come to understand this from numerous Old Testament passages, but clearly spoken of by our Lord in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, where he says, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive unto all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles shall be fulfilled. So there were three things here that our Lord said, and he, he reaffirmed all of these, all of the things that were spoken of by the Old Testament prophets that, that would befall the Jewish people should they break the terms of the covenant. Now it's important to remember this about the covenant on Mount Sinai. The covenant on Mount Sinai was a national covenant. It was not an individual covenant. And so if you were to go to, I believe it's, it's Leviticus chapter 25 or 26, uh, you would see that as, as God through Moses was calling the people to reaffirm the covenant, uh, he was telling them, you are not making this covenant here on your behalf only and on behalf of your children only, but on behalf of those who are not here today. So looking down through time, they were making this covenant uh, for all of the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's the thing about the national covenant. If one person violated one precept of the covenant, it subjected the whole nation to the curses. And so what comes upon the nation during this age of the Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles, comes as a result of their violating the covenant, but it also represents the means by which God is going to bring his people back under the covenant. Okay, so in the age of the Gentiles, God promised these things. So the age of the Gentiles begins in the Babylonian captivity about 600 BC with the conquest of uh, Nebuchadnezzar over the land and continues all the way to the second coming of Christ. That is the age of the Gentiles or that is the time of the Gentiles that God has, that has promised that in retribution and in order to bring Israel back under the covenant these things would be predominant in their life. One, the land would be subject to military conquest almost continuously. Two, the diaspora. Well, what is the diaspora? 
the diaspora would be the scattering of the Jews among the nations of the world, and finally, Jerusalem would be under Gentile control or heavily influenced uh, by gentle, Gentile powers. And we see that that's true even to this day, is it not? So we see that we are, we are there in the age of the Gentiles. Okay, so now what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna combine these two arcs so that we can see on this timeline where we sit at the present time and why it's so crucial that we see this astounding thing that I saw as a driving reason for us to study Jude yet once again in this church. Okay, so here is this arc of time. You'll notice down the bottom there, I have a timeline that says the 77's prophecy of Daniel chapter nine. And so that is the, that is the calibrating, that is the key. That's the, the, uh, the code key, so to speak. You know, when they had code breakers in the war, you know, they had a key that they could use to, to break codes. Well, in scripture, you have these. And so this is the code key to understanding the, the times of the Gentiles. All right, so let me put in those arcs. So, oh. so the first arc I'll put in is one that you've already seen, the age of the Gentiles, which again goes from the Babylonian captivity to the second coming of Christ. So now, if we use the code key that's given to us in Daniel chapter nine, we find, we find this taking place. So the first one, you have that 10 year. This is, this is the nation going into captivity for 70 years. Does anybody remember why they went into captivity and why the number specifically was 70 years? Richard? That's right, they violated the land Sabbaths, right? And so God expels them from the land and puts them uh, under, under uh, Gentile control. Then we have the second, uh, the, the first period of seven which represents the period from which the decree was issued by Artaxerxes for the Jews to go back and rebuild the city until the time that the walls were finished were approximately 70 years. Moving on, if you read the prophecy, it says from the, from the command to rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah, there shall be 69 periods of seven. And so until, uh, until Christ, there would be 69 periods of seven. And we understand that those seven represent years. So it's 69 times 70 years, all right? But this is called the 70 week prophecy. There's still one more week left or one more period of seven left. And that's where the biblical concept of the tribulation lasting seven years comes in. It's right here at the end, okay? All right, so we're building our arc of time. And so here we have this time period that God is, is going to use to bring his people back into and under the covenant. All right, so now let's plug in where, where do we fit in in all of this? Well. We are right here. We are sort of like a pause, a parenthetical in the plan that God has. And in fact, we are going to be used in God's plan to bring his people back into the covenant and bring his people to the place where they will recognize Jesus as their rightful Messiah. So here we have, again, the churches that, and they represent time periods, Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, ba uh, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So there it is. Now these arcs of time are combined. So we know, we know that these periods here, right? If you were to exclude this period of seven, or it would be 70 plus 490 years is what? 560 years, right? But now let's plug in the church and see how much time has elapsed. So if you plug the church in, it's approximately 1,991 years. 
So we are at the ed edge, the, uh, we are right at the edge, we're right at the end. Okay, there's one more thing I wanna show you on the slide, sorry Jonathan, and that is this right here. This question mark, and this I believe is the third reason why God wants us to study the book of Jude at this time. Okay, so now let's get into it. And so here we have these five books in the New Testament that are considered to be the Jewish epistles, and they were written primarily to the diaspora or the Jews who were dispersed around the empire after the Babylonian conquest. All right. Whew, let me catch my breath for a minute. All right, so, oh. So the epistle of Jude, there are 25, it's 25 verses in length, 13 verse quotes from 2 Peter. So actually Jude quotes 13 times from 2 Peter, and actually if he quoted any more from 2 Peter, it might be more appropriate to call the epistle 3 Peter, right? And so, uh, it's the only New Testament writing that quotes from apocryphal works, and he quotes from the Assumption of Moses and the Book of Enoch. Now, interestingly enough, while we still are in possession of some of the fragments of the Assumption of Moses, the part that he quotes here, we're no longer in possession of. But we know that they were legitimate because the early church fathers quoted from them. So, so Jude is one of the only authors of the New Testament who makes frequent uses of outside sources. And he does so without really explaining why and commenting, he just does. And so uh, its, its primary motive is to warn the church against overlooking uh, false prophets that have come into the church. Now there had been, there had been a prior warning given to the church about false prophets. And so a few years earlier, maybe 10 years or so, the apostle Peter had warned the church, primarily the church of the diaspora, the church of the Jews who were in exile, that false prophets would come in the future and cause problems. And so as I mentioned before, the diaspora refers to that, the Jewish community that had dispersed among the region and Really, the, the earliest Christians were almost exclusively Jewish people, and it wasn't until later that the Gentile movement began to grow within the church. So the New Testament contains five letters written to this group, which, as I said, are called the Jewish epistles. Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, and Jude. In his second letter, Peter warned the church that evil men and impostors and false teachers would come into the church. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, we read, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, denying even the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of the way of whom the truth will be blasphemed. So in Jude's day, now, uh, most people think that the epistle of Jude was written within the same time period, but maybe as much as 10 years after 2 Peter was written. But what had happened in Jude's day was what Peter had foretold would happen had come to pass. And so he was now writing this letter to get the Jewish believers to recognize that this is now a fact of life and they had to deal with it. Jude's letter shares another common feature to all Jewish epistles in that he borrows liberally from Jewish historical sources in order to make the points that he makes in this book. And so as we move through these examples in the coming weeks, it's gonna be necessary for us to go back and to take another look at those passages that he quotes that they fully understood and understood what he was getting at. Okay, so there are five ways in which Jude is unique among all of the five Jewish epistles. 
The structure of the book is comprised of 14 triads. Well, what are triads? Triads are basically thoughts expressed in threes. It's the only New Testament book that is sourced by someone who is not considered an apostle. So neither Luke nor Mark were apostles either, but Luke's material was sourced by Paul, while Mark's material was sourced by Peter. Jude is only one of New Testament authors with a family connection to Jesus, right? Who is the other one? One is Jude, and the other one is? Not Paul. James, right? So James and Jude, who, who wrote epistles, were half-brothers of Jesus. And as I said, it quotes 13 times from 2 Peter and, and uh, quotes from two apocryphal books. Okay, moving on. Oh. So let's look at triads one and two, and we're going to spend a few minutes here because some things that I want to point out to you. So in Jude 1, we read, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love uh, be multiplied to you. Okay, the first thing I want to point out here is that Jude isn't a real name. Matter of fact, it didn't really become a formal name until the Beatles wrote a song and used it in the title. Just kidding, right? Actually, actually the, the man's name is Judas. That's his real name, Judas. And so when the English translators put the English translation together to avoid the stigma of the name Judas, right? Because we associate Judas with Judas Iscariot. They came up with this name, Jude. So just to kind of illustrate the point, is there anyone here who would be willing to name their next born son Judas? Anyone? Raise your hand. Okay, all right, Mark, I'm gonna hold you to it. Someone has to hold him to it, right? So Mark, his next son, his first son, he's gonna name Judas. All right, because I wanna give equal opportunity here. Let me ask you this question. Parents, is there any one of you here who would be willing to name your next daughter Jezebel? So you get the point, right? So. That's the point here. So the real, his real name was Judas, but it was changed to Jude by the, by the authors. Notice here, a couple things to notice here. The first thing I want to point out is you notice here that he, in his introduction of himself, he, he names himself as, as the brother of James, but he never names himself as the half-brother of Jesus nor does James do the same thing. Why do you think that might be? Couple of reasons. That's right. They didn't actually come to believe that, that Jesus was the Messiah until after his resurrection. Now think for a moment of what it must have been like growing up in a home where Jesus was your older brother. It's like, yeah, no wonder why he's mom and dad's favorite, you know? He's the son of God, you know? And so, so there's, that, there's that reason there. Samuel? Very good, excellent, excellent. And so that's also absolutely true. But I think it's, it's illustrative of something here that we have to keep in mind, that, that even though Jesus was their half-brother on earth, that their relationship with him had changed, A, as they became believers, and B, as he became the glorified son of man, right? And so one thing, believer, that I want to assure you of, when you finally see Jesus in heaven, you will not be fist bumping with him. Okay, you will be falling down 
before, before the throne. And so that their relationship, whatever it was, had forever changed. Now, if you look in the book of Revelation, if there was one apostle that had the closest relationship with our Lord and Savior during his earthly ministry, it was the apostle John. And what happens to John when he sees the vision of the glorified Son of Man? Boom, he falls on his face. Get up. And in the millennial temple, when, when, the, uh, when, when Jesus comes down off the Mount of Olives and in through the east gate, and the east gate after Jesus passes through is sealed and closed forever, he goes into the Holy of Holies, and there he remains, the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies in the millennial temple. And believers who are, who are commanded to make a pilgrimage uh, to the holy city once a year, they can either pass through in through the north gate and pass out the south gate. They can't go the same way. And as they get to a certain point, they will be able to gaze into the Holy of Holies because there's no more barrier there and witness for a moment the Shekinah glory, and then they must walk out the other way and vice versa. So the relationship changed completely. So neither one of these men come to recognize their own brother as the Messiah until his resurrection. Instead, they made reference to their spiritual relationship. Okay, so I wanted to say that, and I want to say something about that term, their bondservant, as well. And so there is a difference between the term servant and bondservant, right? And so I'm going to use the more primitive terms here, slave and bond slave. So a slave is someone who had come under some sort of financial hardship, and they had to place themselves in what's called indentured slavery to a person for the time that it would take them to earn the money to pay off their debt uh, or, or pay the pay the the debt or what they owed them. So you only had two choices in that case. You either came up with the cash or you went into indentured slavery. Now in that place of indentured slavery, you were just a slave. You were at the whim of the person that you had indentured yourself to. They could tell you when to eat. They could tell you when to sleep. They could basically do whatever they wanted to do to you uh, and whatever you envision slavery to be, that's the kind of relationship that it was. But the difference was, in some cases, there were some slaves who found themselves in indentured slavery to a master who was actually quite kind and quite, quite nice to them and provided for them everything that they needed and was not was not overly rigorous and, and actually displayed affection and love for the slave. And so under that circumstance, a slave could think to himself, you know what, uh, I kind of like the life that I have here. And it's actually been good for me to serve this person. And it's kind of something that I freely want to do for the rest of my life. It's my pleasure to do these things. At that point, now the relationship would change and the slave would move from being a slave to a bond slave. He was now yoking himself with his whole heart volitionally to serve this individual. And so when Jude and all of the apostles refer to themselves as bond servants, as bond slaves, that's what they're actually speaking to us. Okay, so let's get going here. So Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called sancti uh, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. And so what we have there is we have this greeting that comes, for, uh, comes to us, and it comes to a specific group, to those who are called the ecclesia, the called out ones, and you see that 
what is mentioned there, the call comes on behalf of the triune God. And so to those who are called, and so the calling comes from the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit regenerates us and brings us to the point of understanding that we are lost in our sins and trespasses and brings us to the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is the blood of Christ that, that, uh, uh, that sets us apart, that pays the price that we could not pay and then brings us into this relationship of servant to the triune God. And all of this happens on the basis of the, of the, of the Father who wills all of these things. And so you've heard the theological decree in the past. Uh, it is God the Father who, who, who uh, decrees salvation. It's God the Son who secures salvation, and it's the Holy Spirit who applies salvation, and it's all here. But do, did you notice that there, there's something that I just said that didn't sound quite right? I said it is God the Father who predetermines that we should become slaves, servants of God. I said that because, you know, it is possible for a true believer to be a servant of the Lord, but not a bondservant of the Lord. You see the difference between the two? And I think that this is primarily a big problem in the church today. Because the reality of the fact is, if you're a believer, you've been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. You're his slave. There it is. You're his slave, and there's nothing that can change that relationship. But there's a big difference between understanding that you're a servant of God and understanding that it is the greatest joy and pleasure of your life. And there's nothing I want more in this world than to serve him. That's the difference between being a slave and being a bondservant. And that is precisely what I lost during that time period. But thanks be to God, I have discovered it again, that it really is all about Christ. And so this is what Jude is inviting us all into, or God through Jude, into this wonderful thing called being a bondservant, recognizing that we're called by the Holy Spirit, that we are preserved in Christ Jesus and beloved by the Father. And then the second triad comes and says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And boy, do we ever need those things as we need now. Think of, think of how many, when I think back over the course of my life, where I so deserve to be struck with a pestilence or a plague or with a bolt of lightning for, for the horrible things that I have done in my life and for the horrible thoughts that I've had in my head. And I, I'm not just talking about my pre-Christ days, but even in my life as a believer, and that God has been merciful to me when I deserved his extreme wrath. And so we, 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 we tend to lose... We, you know what it's kind of like? It's kind of like when... Remember when the, when the Jews were walking through the wilderness and they were starving, and then all of a sudden God gave them this manna, and it was like, whoa, this is... Um, you know, what's that pastry shop in, a, in Springfield? La Fiorentina's pastries every day. This stuff is great. And then after a while, it's like, well, I'm sick and tired of this stinking manna. You know, there are real lessons there for us, that that is a trajectory that every one of us can and most often do fall into, where we take for granted the things that have been freely given to us, the mercy of God. So it says, he says, mercy and peace, the peace of God. You know, I, I love what, what uh, Pastor Roman said this morning, and, and he was really adamant about the fact that most especially during this time, we should not be fearing death. Death is not something to be feared. 
believer, for you because Christ has conquered death, hell, and the grave on your behalf and on my behalf. And it pains me to see Christians so fearful of this disease and so fearful of dying and all of the anxieties. And just to, just to kind of drive that home a little bit, we read this out of the book of Hebrews. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You've been freed from that. You don't need to be anxious about that anymore. God has ordained the seconds of your life, how many they shall be from before the foundation of the world, and nothing can change that. So you have his mercy. You have that kind of peace that can sustain you and keep you from being blown off course in this hurricane of things, mask on, mask off, vax on, vax off. It's like, what is this, the karate kid? Vax on, vax off, you know? You don't have to worry about any of this stuff. And so, you know, people, they fret about this stuff. And when I hear this kind of stuff from believers, it's like, it doesn't matter because it's all passing away anyway. It's all going away. And there's something better that God has coming, right? But in the meantime, we can have that mercy, we can have that peace, and we have that grace. It's been given to us. And so we can't forget it, and we can't take it for granted. And so uh, we have this greeting, and then Jude, and this will be the last place where we, where we end uh, as far as our advancement in the, in the uh, scriptures tonight, the purpose for the writing. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So there was something here that caused the Holy Spirit to redirect Jude, who had intended to write to them about their faith. He was just going to you know, maybe share some deepening principles of the faith. But the Holy Spirit redirected him and said, no, uh, I need you to write to this group to tell them to contend earnestly for the faith. And so that term, to contend there, actually means to, to persevere and to fight, to fight for something, to stand up for something. Now, the faith that is being talked about here is not, you know, I'm going to get that person into the kingdom I'm going to get them into faith whether i got to beat them into it or not. No, he's talking about the content of the gospel. He's talking about the faith, right? That we are all called to engage this contest in, in, in defending, in preserving, in, in receiving what has been faithfully transmitted to us and transmitting it to those who will come afterward, which becomes very, very important, as you'll see here in just a few moments. And so that's what we're called to do. So he's redirected. Uh, he's redirected to write to them, and by extension to us as well, as you'll see here for a minute. Well, why was he redirected? And it goes on and says in verse 4 and 5, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the term certain men here refers to a very specific group of men. Uh, and, and throughout the entire body of scriptures, and you, you see it very early on, you, you see it there uh, with, with Cain, right? Interestingly enough, Eve thought uh, that Cain was going to be the, the seed who would crush the head of the serpent that had deceived her. But he actually ended up being a representative now 
of this long war. I think it's, it's either, I think it's Henry T. Morris who wrote a book called The Long War, um, The Long War Between Good and Evil, something like that. And so this, that's it, The Long War Against God. And so, so the scriptures from front to back prophesy, and then we have Jesus telling the parable of the wheat and tares, that among the wheat, tares would be planted as well. And so that, so that nobody can plead ignorance to this, and that's what Jude is saying here, is that they couldn't plead ignorance to this because this is, especially as Jewish, they've had been in possession of the scriptures, the law and the prophets for millennia. So they, nothing here should take them by surprise that these men uh, who uh, it had been written about beforehand would creep in, and that is to settle in unnoticed. And so, husbands, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I know I do it every opportunity that I can. You know, if my wife is doing something in the house, you know, like scrubbing something and she has her ear pods on, you know, I'll come in quietly into the kitchen and I'll just come up behind her and I'll just stand there. Now you can imagine turning around and seeing that there, right? So, so I like doing that, I, you know, I'm confessing here. So, but it doesn't happen, sometimes it just happens innocently, but you get the idea, it's kind of like you're standing in water and something comes up and just slowly comes up and it's next to you. Or when you're walking down the road and, and not realizing that someone is coming up behind you slowly unnoticed, and all of a sudden they're right there next to you. That's what, that's what Jude is saying here, that these men would come in, they would creep in, they would settle in unnoticed, and then it just plainly identifies them as ungodly men, which is unbelievers, impious, destitute of reverential fear of God. Those who turn the grace of God, that is they... See, the devil is smart. He's not going to come in and make a frontal assault on the doctrine of God. What he's going to try and do is shift it by slight degrees. I don't know if you remember the illustration here from years ago when we started with two points of strings here, and, and that's how the adversary works. And so they knew, because they had been warned that these men were gonna come in and they were gonna start to slightly skew the doctrine just a little bit so that in a generation or two it would be so much different from what it initially uh, had been given to be. And I use the term transpose. This is for the benefit of musicians here in the group. You know that when you transpose one song from one key to another, it kind of sounds the same, but it's not the same song, right? Because it's now being played in a key other than which it was written. So that's what, that's what Jude is saying here. And that that transposition would take them and would lead believers into lewdness, which is the, the acceptance of unbridled lust. Now, when we think of the term unbridled lust, you know, we think of womanizers and pornography and all of those things, and it certainly includes those things. But what it's really speaking of here is, is to a hedonistic lifestyle where it becomes more about the toys and more about fulfilling the, you know, the desires of the flesh rather than you know, making everything about Christ, which is the reality. You know, if that's who you are, if you're in Christ, that's your reality now and nothing can change it. And the more that you try and pursue, uh, the more that you try and pursue the deeds and the lusts of the flesh, the more miserable your life is going to be. And that's exactly what the adversary wants because if he can make your life miserable by leading you in that direction, then he can diffuse your power for the kingdom of God. Shamelessness, no, they feel no shame before God as they pursue the flesh. And I keep going back to what uh, Rabbi Zacharias said that there are three steps to the, to the dissolution of any culture. The first one is secularization, right? When anything that is not pragmatic to getting the job done is excluded from the public square. 
And when that happens, when there are no morals and values allowed in the public square, because it doesn't serve any pragmatic purpose for the society according to their thinking, what you have is you have the loss of shame. I mean, think of the things that are happening in our society now that used to, that people didn't talk about just 10 years ago because of the shame that was attached to it, right? Now, how far has it gotten? that those who say that those people who do those things ought to be ashamed of themselves are actually told that they should be the ones who should be ashamed of themselves for saying such things. So with secularization comes the loss of shame. With pluralization, pluralization is where all worldviews have equal weight and none is better or more dominant than the other, then you have loss of reason because now there's no standard by which to adjudicate anything. What's right and what's wrong? If my worldview is the same as your worldview uh, and I think white is black and you think black is white, who's to say who's right and who's wrong? And so there's no basis on which to reason anymore. And finally, privatization which is, you know what, you can be a Christian, but you leave your Christianity at home. But you know what, you can't do that. I, I take my faith with me to my job, and it is my faith that makes me a better employee and more conscientious worker. But when you take those things out of the public sphere, you also have the loss of meaning. There's no more meaning to anything, you see? and and. Not only is that happening in the culture at large, but it's happening in the church as well. And so they change the grace of God into lewdness. Okay. So we're going to stop there, and I want to conclude with just these thoughts. So what I have for you there is I have the two passages lined up. I have the Second Peter 2, chapter 1 and on, and the Jude passage. Now, if you'll notice, if you read... In the Second Peter section, that when he talks about false teachers, he's talking future tense. They are going to come. And when you look at the Jude passage, which is approximately five to ten years later, it is in the past tense. They've come in. So they had neglected the warning that Peter had given them, and the false teachers had come into the church. So they were warned that false teachers were going to come in among them to slowly distort the truth by degrees. They had neglected the Holy Spirit. Uh, they had neglected the warning. And now that false teachers had come in and settled among them, they were beginning to exert a negative influence on the believers by shifting their doctrine and shifting their practice. You see that? You shift the doctrine, you shift the practice. It also, it also works inverted, too. You shift the practice, eventually you shift the doctrine. You see, this is how they get in. They come in and they slowly move it by degrees. And I want you to see, I'm going to ask you a very tough question here in just a minute, because I think it's important for each and every one of us at times to really have the courage to be confronted with something and say, yeah, I'm that guy, you know? But so thus the Holy Spirit redirects Jude or Judas to write to them to shape up and start fighting the once delivered faith. It's a delivered once. Okay, so here's a, you know, the $10,000 questions. Why does this matter to us? This is the one that I struggled with when Pastor Roman spoke to me about it. They, they know all this stuff. Why do they need to hear it again, you know? Well, there are at least three reasons. Number one, we're all making the same exact mistakes. Look around you. Pastor Roman, you've had the opportunity to visit other churches on your vacation. Is this happening all around us or is it not? It's happening all around us. We're starting to see it. Now we're actually starting to see a division in evangelical Christianity over this whole business of CRT and all of that stuff. It's, it's happening. And these kinds of things, you know, this split is happening in the Southern Baptist Convention, not the mainline denominations, they're already gone. 
But this kind of stuff, when you see it happen in traditionally conservative groups like Southern Baptist Convention, it's become a serious issue. So we're making all the same mistakes. Second reason, what faith are we passing to our children and our grandchildren? You see? It's up to us. See, there were those who came before us who were faithful and understood the charge that, you know, they were called to, to live for a greater purpose than just themselves, right? That there is this arc of time that I've shown you. We, are, we participate in this arc of time. And so what kind of faith are we going to pass to our children and our grandchildren? Well, you know what? I know all of you here, so I'm not too worried about that. But there is a third reason, and this is the reason that kind of like blew my hair back or would blow my hair back a little bit if I had any when I saw it. Well, we know that there is an interval between the rapture of the church, right? So I took you there. We are at the end. We are right at the end of this age. We are in the Laodicean age, right? We're right there, right? So we're... 1991 approximate years into that time period called the last days, all right? So we know that there's an interval between the rapture of the church and the next interval of evangelism that comes in the tribulation. So what am I saying to you here? And this is the part that astounded me. Between the rapture of the church and the onset of the tribulation, there is apparently no organized evangelism going on on planet Earth. The next time you see evangelism, organized evangelism take place from a scriptural perspective is not until the start of the Great Tribulation when you have the 144,000 Jews and the two witnesses begin their ministry. So here's the thing. The rapture of the church is imminent. It could take place today. It could take place 10 years from now. But it also could be true that once the rapture takes place and every living believer is taken off the face of the earth, that it could be another 50, 100, 500 years until the start of the Great Tribulation. And there is no scriptural proof that there is any organized evangelism taking place on planet Earth during that interval. So here is why I say it's important, this is important for us, because what people living during that interval, the only thing that they might have is what we leave behind. Do you understand that? It's what we leave behind. And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if through our faithfulness in maintaining and contending for the faith that God would use the solid doctrine and example that we leave behind as something that he would use to help the 144,000 Jewish evangelists grow in the faith. The teachings that we leave behind. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? In my estimation, it would. And I think God can use that just like he's used that in the past during the dark ages of the church. Okay. All right. So there is an interval between the witness of the church and the witness of the Messianic Jews of the tribulation. We don't know how long that time period is but I think it's incumbent upon us to do our very best to contend earnestly for the faith. That's why I think it's so important that we undertake this study. Now, here is where I'm going to put us all on the spot. Right here is the Sovereign Grace Church Statement of Faith. This is the most comprehensive statement of faith that I have read anywhere that includes universities, seminaries. So here's my question to you. Yep, I'm not going to move, John, although I, every bone in my body wants to move right now. I'm not going to move. It's approximately, I think, 22, 23 pages. How many of you have read this from front to back? 
Raise your hand. If you're a member of this church and you have not read this from front to back, you need to repent. Because when you became a member of this church, you said you read and understood the contents and you believe it. But how can you believe in something you have not read? You see, this is how it happens. It happens, no, everybody has good intentions. It's just we get busy, we get distracted, and these things happen. Now, I know that there are things, because a, a lot of work went into this document. And those of you who were here remembered, we went painstakingly through every article in Sunday school to make sure that everybody understood what it was that they were going to be voting on. And this was for your protection and for your children and your grandchildren's protection that it would not be so easy for a false prophet to come in here and hoodwink the saints of this church so long as they took the time to read and understand what this doctrine says, what this statement says. Well, you might be saying, just, well, I don't need that. I have the Bible. Yeah, you do. And this will help you to study it in a concrete way that you will be able to assimilate and imbibe in your life because that's the key to all of this. You know that, and I'm going to close with this, Paul had a preference with the saints at the church of Philippi. You know what he says about them in the opening of his letter? He says that they were partakers with him in the fellowship of the gospel. He wasn't saying that they were a church of missionaries or that they were a church of pastors or that they were a church of Sunday school teachers. He was saying that they got it, that everything about life was about Christ. He was the one. Everything they did was about Christ. And thus he understood that they were participants of fellowship with him in the gospel. That's what God calls us to do. That's what he's calling us to do. And, and our faithfulness can, and I suspect will be used by God and left as a testimony to, to those who are, find themselves living in that interval period where there is no active evangelism going on on planet Earth. What they have is what we leave behind. What are we going to leave behind? That's why this letter is so important.